Good, <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. Hey, uh, welcome. Asher and I are just connecting here. It's just look great. He's like pointing, like there's something going on outside. Car. Or maybe he wants up here, he wants my job. Happy to, happy to lend it to you for this morning. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. I'm uh, so glad you're here with us this morning. If you've got a Bible with you or a Bible app, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 20 in just a couple minutes. But last week, uh, Pastor Kevin and I had the honor of going to Ontario to uh, attend on your behalf uh, our EMCC, which is our denomination, our biannual assembly. And I got to say it was really, really good. Um, it was great to be reminded of the fact that we are part of a larger family as a church. We have sister churches and brother churches all across the country. And uh, I saw many church pastors and leaders, too many to count, who said to me to pass on my greetings to you. So greetings. It seems like a very formal, old-fashioned thing to do, but I'm going to say greetings anyway. And a big shout-out from Ken and Carolyn Benson, who used to be part of this family and then became global workers out from Hillside, and they now are based in Stouffville, Ontario, which is where our conference was. Now, I got to say this was a very interesting trip for me because it was held in Stouffville, which I just mentioned. Stouffville was where I went to high school. Like, that was my hometown. It was, it was very disconcerting because while I was in Stouffville, I drove down the street where my high school was, and it's now a parking lot. There literally is no high school there anymore. Um, Stouffville, which was a town when I left it 30 years ago, is now a city, about four times the size of when it was when I was there back in the day. Um, we, we arrived late Wednesday night, and on Thursday morning, we had a little bit of time before the conference began. And so uh, Kevin and I parted ways, and I went to a local coffee shop and just sat there. And I was feeling kind of sad, to be honest, like kind of melancholic. Here I'm in my hometown, and it's changed, and I don't really know who to call or who I might know, and I'm feeling kind of like, oh, maybe my time here didn't matter. And as I'm feeling this kind of, you know, loneliness, I look up, and there's this little older lady uh, who I immediately recognized, Mrs. Stover, one of my best friend's moms. And I looked over her and at her, and I said, Mrs. Stover, and she looked at me, and she says, Derwin. <laughs> Just in that tone, you know, Derwin. And we had a nice visit. And then I walked, down the, I walked out of that coffee street and walked down the street, Main Street, which was my Main Street. And uh, I saw a business that was there back in the day, had the same name on it. And it used to be run by my youth leader back in youth group. And I thought, I wonder if he might still be there. He's probably too old. He's probably retired. But it was still named after him. And so I actually walked in the door, opened the door, and there's a guy at the end of the hall. And he looks at me, and I look at him, and he says, Derwin Gray. And I thought, I'm back. This is fantastic. It's good to be home. Um, and it turns out it's the son of my youth leader who's taken over his dad's business. And he, along with his new partner, which is uh, another friend of mine from youth group back in the day, and he and I, we all went to church and were in youth group together, went to university together even. And so we, it turns out it was an insurance company and they don't do anything because we stood around and talked for the next hour and a half uh, and reminisced about people we knew. It was like 30 years of catch up in 90 minutes. It was fantastic. We talked about people in our lives, people 
that we grew up with, some of whom have actually fallen away from faith, who were at one point devout believers and followers of Jesus and who now have, have walked away, wandered away big time. They've maybe, maybe in some senses sin kind of wiped them out or just they had doubts and that led them down a path away from God. One of our friends we talked about had fallen away big time. He got into financial trouble and began stealing uh, from clients in his investment firm. Hurt a lot of people. And uh, I also heard, though, how another friend of ours, this, this, this guy was convicted and imprisoned, and, and I heard about another friend of ours who visited him faithfully in prison month after month and reminded this guy that game, the game was not over, that God loved him, and forgiveness was available. And when this guy, this friend of ours, got out of prison, he'd recommitted his life to Jesus, and he's now living accountably. He's so tied into Jesus, and it's so, so good. It's a great, great story, isn't it? Really what I was reminded of is I talked to this friend, and, and my thought of my, my friend who'd gone away and come back was the potential power of Christian community to rescue and restore brothers and sisters who wander away in their faith. This is one of the ways of Jesus. He actually invites us, though, to participate with him in this ministry of, of what you might call rescue or correction. Let's walk through Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. We'll kind of go a verse at a time, and we're picking it up in verse 10. So does that sound okay? Okay, well, just pr let's pray for a moment. Jesus, uh, your teaching is so good and life-giving, and it's sometimes hard for us to get and harder for us to live. So would you speak to us this morning by your spirit? Uh, Lord, we want to not just hear about, we, we don't want to be just fans of yours. We actually want to live according to your word. And so teach us how we live this peace today, we ask. Lead us, we ask, by your grace and in your mercy. In Christ's name, amen. In verse 10, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now this verse is directly related to the passage from last week, just the text immediately before. And, and just two things to note here. First is a warning. Jesus says, watch out, take great care how you treat these little ones. And little ones could mean children, but actually in this context, and it does apply to them, but in this context, it likely refers to brothers and sisters who maybe are new to faith or, or struggling with faith or perhaps have a shallow or an immature faith, someone who's maybe been abused, even by the church, someone who's vulnerable. And Jesus says, don't despise them. Don't look down on them. Those of you who are strong, don't ever look down on those who are weak. Paul would say, you know, be mindful of your weaker brother or sister. Because as Dale Bruner put it, a uh, great commentator of the New Testament, he says, the world government of God is directed towards the smallest person and the smallest people. I like that. It's the upside-down way of Jesus. And then to back that up, Jesus then says, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Some, of this, some people have taken this line to kind of get the idea that we have guardian angels. And I think many of us like the idea of 
of having guardian angels, Scripture really doesn't back up that thought in any great way. And as some have said, they really seem to fail at their job sometimes, right? If we had guardian angels, like where were they then, you know? I mean, anyway, another story. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus' point here is if you hurt one of these little ones, it is no small matter. It will actually come to the attention of the Father himself because God is concerned about how we love or don't love one another in the body of Christ. Jesus goes on to to tell a little parable in verse 12. He says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep, a hundred sheep, by the way, was kind of a typical size of a sheep flock in that day, and and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So as Jesus often does, he gives us a little parable. And the shepherd in the parable is God himself personified as Jesus. Jesus the good shepherd. Earlier in Matthew, we're told that Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The, the, the lost sheep in the parable is a follower of Jesus who has gone astray, who has wandered away, who's maybe been misled in some way, maybe misled by a, a you know, false teacher, or they've been snagged by sin. And the 99 really represent the church. The idea of God as a shepherd was kind of a running theme throughout all of Scripture. I mean, how can we not think of Psalm 23, which begins with what words? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What's new in Jesus' parable is the idea of God the shepherd who goes after the one. I love again how Dale Bruner puts it. He says, the one statistically insignificant wanderer means everything to the shepherd. Human thinking says, let it go. We have 99. The father's thinking is, there were 100 Where is my one? And Jesus is trying to convey to us the mentality of the one to the importance of the statistically unimportant. His command again is think little. Think small. I think Jesus would have loved hobbits, just saying. (laughs) He really would have, actually. Or, or he liked that I liked them. I think that's maybe more the case, uh, just aside. This, this parable, I think, is so, ought to be so encouraging for us because it means you're not a statistic to God. I remember going to university, and, uh, you know, when, when you're in high school, all your teachers knew you. You kind of was a small pond. And when we got to the bigger pond, I, I remember feeling like a number. It didn't matter in the system of that bigger school. And here, Jesus, we're reminded that God cares about every person, that every person matters so much to God. And when one of us wanders off or falls away in some way or becomes vulnerable to sin, God doesn't shrug and say, too bad, oh well, sheep will be sheep. He doesn't just, you know, shrug us off. Instead, he pursues us and he goes after you or me. And he invites us in Christian community to follow his example and to go after each other. 
And so in verse 15, Jesus gives us this practice for the church. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of one, of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. So who assigned me this text? I think it was me, but whatever. <laughs> so, so what do we make of this? Well, well, two things right off the bat. Notice that it says brother or sister, which, this, which means this ministry of correction is not for people outside the church, but people inside the church. This is not something you do online where you, you know, you're, you're, you're doing this to, to politicians or people out there in the world, uh, not to strangers, not to our neighbors, not to our coworkers. Paul would later say to the Corinthians, who are we to judge outsiders? Second, it's if your brother or sister sins, which which really means this isn't specifically a practice for personal conflict or hurt, hurt feelings or enforcing personal preference. Um, some Bible versions will have a little footnote. If you have an ESV or an IV, it'll tell us that the words sins against you is there, is added in some manuscripts, as in if your brother or sister sins against you. If so, this teaching would make, uh, this, would make this teaching of Jesus more geared towards like reconciling personal conflict, working things out. And, and actually, there's wisdom here. I mean, some of the principles that are here are really helpful in personal conflict. If you're in a marriage difficulty, sometimes going to a marriage counselor, which is a second party, can actually bring some objectivity and, and actually talk to the person. Those are good pr principles in terms of resolving conflict. But a vast majority of scholars suggest against you was not in Jesus' original teachings. Now, Jesus outlines four steps to this practice. First, Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Go. <laughs> Such a Jesus word, right? Go. He's always saying that. Go like the shepherd does. Go after the lost sheep and point out their fault. Fault can be translated as rebuke or correct or confront. Go to the, the person and confront where they're in the wrong. As in, hey, you seem to be really out of line there. I'm concerned about that. Hey, hey, you were bragging about fudging your tax return or paying your workers under the table or avoiding taxes, something like that. Hey, I noticed you moved in with your girlfriend. Are you sleeping together? Hey, I've noticed a pattern of kind of anger or contempt in your speech. I, I, I'm worried about you. It's a hard conversation for sure, but it's, it's, it's about pointing out where someone is not living in alignment with the teachings of Jesus. And, and it's not meant to be fault-finding, where we're looking for where people are failing, but it's, it's actually having a healthy recognition of just how destructive sin can be. I mean, read the previous text about how seriously Jesus takes sin, right? Not just letting somebody wander down a, a path away from God as if there is no consequences. But notice you do it just between the two of you. This is so important, as in, don't shame them in public. 
This is not something you do on somebody's Twitter account or on Instagram. And in our, in our day, this is kind of a thing. We have this kind of call-out culture, this kind of public shaming that happens online. And Jesus is very clear, don't do this. One, one pastor warned that when we do this, that we, we kind of reap what we sow. He said, hypercritical people that go after and attack other people end up criticized and attacked by other people, right? And I think it's primarily about respecting them as a person and as a human being that God loves. You know, I think when I've uh, confronted things in my son's lives over the years, and I've had lots of opportunity to confront things in my son's lives, I've learned that, especially at first, you never do this in front of other people, and especially never in front of their brother. Like, that just is really no good. But you don't start with a family meeting. You start with a a side-by-side, a one-on-one conversation. Because you do it in front of other people, it can bring this this shame on them. You you start privately, which respects them. And if our goal is to help someone, which ought to be our goal, the way we do this is, is so important because we want to be healers, not hurters. So Jesus is saying, do this in private, not public. Keep shame out of this. You have a better chance, actually, of success if you do this in love, in a non-judgy spirit, and if it's just between the two of you. Sound, sound right? Secondly, talk to them and not about them. This is huge. Go to the person. Don't go to everyone else. <laughs> how, how true have we seen how gossip can be so toxic to a culture, right? Gossip can ruin a, a community, a, a, a work group. A, it can ruin a church, right? So talk to the person. Jesus says don't talk about the person. Talk to the person. Um, on the gossip side of things, just an aside, years ago uh, I was in an elders meeting and I was talking about someone in the meeting who was in our church who was kind of giving me maybe some grief at the time, and I was talking really negatively about that person to the group. And uh, after the meeting, one of the elders pulled me aside, before they went home that night actually, pulled me aside and said, I really felt kind of uncomfortable about that time in our meeting, Darwin, and I wondered whether you were maybe guilty of, of gossip or slander. Talk about modeling Matthew 18. And, I, and actually... I was initially taken aback, but I was also convicted and knew they were right. And, and, and actually, their, their bold word to me, I, I think in that moment, or honest word to me, has, has been an echo and reminder that's helped me at times tame my tongue, which is almost untamable, I'm convinced of, and you know this. But I'm working on it, and, and I'm working on it because some people have actually called me on some of the things I've said, and they still do. I'm grateful. So again, we go to the person and we talk to them, not just about them. Just an aside, there are exceptions where you would never one-on-one go to the person. There are instances where it actually might be dangerous to do so. If somebody has abused you, if you've been a victim of abuse, it literally might not be safe for you to actually go and confront that person. And and, and I want to say here at this church, we, we would urge you to go to the authorities our EMCC has, has adopted a whole new strategy about handling a, a abuse, and they have on their webpage 
a, a place where you can click and report abuse. If you experienced abuse from one of our leaders or, or, or if you knew of something and you didn't feel safe to report it in context, go out of context. And, and we will be a, a community that actually does not tolerate abuse of behavior and we will actually confront it and deal with it. And we'll take it to the authorities if we need to. Just, just want to say that as an aside. It's such an important thing. So you don't always go to the person that sometimes it will be unsafe to do so. But Jesus goes on. He says, if they listen to you, you've won them over. Some of you know this, how on the other side of a confrontation, the relationship is strengthened. It, it goes deeper. The, the relationship grows. And they've been and that person has been won back from the enemy of their souls, which you might sum up as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And when that happens, it is a beautiful gospel thing. It's worth celebrating. But it doesn't always work out that way. Maybe they don't listen. I, I got to say this, receiving confrontation in a humble spirit in a teachable spirit, I, I don't think that's a strength that we are known for in our culture, is it? We're more of a mind-your-own-business kind of culture. <laughs> like, stay in your lane. Don't meddle with my life. And, and that's, for us wanderers, we should be listening and learning the ways of Jesus about humility and teachability and listening and when someone comes to us, we ought to be ones that want to grow and change and, and line up with Jesus. And so I, I, I encourage you, let, let's, let's try to cultivate that in our hearts. But Jesus continues. He says, if they won't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of one or two, or by two or three witnesses. Now, it's important. This is not about ganging up on a person. This is actually a safeguard for the person. Verse 16 is a quote from Deuteronomy, and its original context was a court of law. And you are not to convict somebody without a minimum of two or three witnesses. And this protected someone from someone else's, like, personal vendetta. You know, like one witness. I'm just mad at you. I'm going to take you to court with no evidence. So it actually protected you from injustice. And the goal here is simply, is similar, I should say. It's, it's to help you be objective to have things confirmed with another party. And then for the person in sin, this helps them know that this is not just so-and-so's opinion. So step two is you go to the person with one or two other people. Step three is if they're still not hearing you or responding in any way, Jesus says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now, what does Jesus mean by when he says the church? And how would we apply that in our day? Would we add a little time in our services on Sunday mornings and we'd call somebody up? And, I mean, I could just see how wrong that would go and how hurtful that could be. And uh, we'd empty out as a church pretty quickly, I think. I, I don't think that's a practice we could translate into our day. How we do this at Hillside would likely be through our pastors or our elders, uh, maybe through our life group leaders. But the point is to help the person see how important this is, to not treat it lightly or glibly. However we do it, it needs to be done in an honoring and respectful and loving way, as, as one scholar put it, with an impressive carefulness, 
We t- we're meant to take, in, in Jesus' words, uh, great care as to how we do this. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. This is not ever meant to be a power thing. It's meant to be a love thing. We're to do this in Jesus' way. Finally, step four. Jesus says, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. The ESV version, I think, is helpful here, where it says, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. The verb is passive, which means it's not something you do to them, but rather what they might be to you. And Jesus' idea here is, at this point is it's out of your control. You've actually done what you can do. You're not actually entirely responsible for their lives. Now you respect their decision, you respect their free will, and you actually let them go. Now what's with the tax collector and pagan deal? It sounds kind of severe, right? And it could, like, in Jesus' day, sounds like Jesus is telling us to now mistreat them or shun them in some way. But what Jesus is saying is, on one hand, you'd exclude them from life in the community or, or at least the inner circle or, or, or leadership. At Hillside, this would be kind of our membership. We might exclude somebody from membership if, if they were living in some kind of sin. When you join our church, we ask you to walk in the ways of Jesus and walk it, not just talk it, because talk is cheap. <laughs> People can say I'm a Christian, but if they've wandered from God, they're actually living in a kind of rebellion against God, like a pagan or a tax collector. For example, years ago, there was a man in our church who had dated a woman in our church, and they broke up, and then he began to harass her in some ways, especially verbally, verbally abusive for sure. And, and we went to him, and we talked with him and said, we love you. But that's got to stop. It can't continue. That's a behavior that's not welcome in this community. And he wasn't open to that and he left. We didn't have to ask him to leave. He left himself. And that's often, again, our, our responsiveness to correction in our day is such that we're, we're often ready to walk away. And it's a shame that there wasn't reconciliation there. I, I don't know about you. This is uncomfortable teaching. The idea of kicking someone out of a community seems so severe. But John Mark Comer helped me with this. Tension. He reminds us that all communities do this. <laughs> he says progressive, tolerant, inclusive communities do this all the time. You have to preserve the moral integrity of a community that has any kind of moral bar. He goes on to say this isn't a left-wing thing or a right-wing thing or a religious thing. It's a human thing. I thought I, this morning Hockey Canada came to mind and and the challenges that are there, and, and they're, they're, they're having to come up with some standards and enforce standards, and we would want them to, right? But again, with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is likely saying, reach out to them and invite them to follow me like you would anyone who is actually far from God. In fact, Jesus demonstrates throughout, throughout the Gospels a particular fondness for who? Tax collectors and pagans. <laughs> like, he's... He seems to love them with a, a fondness that's really sweet. I mean, Matthew, the author of this gospel we're in, was a former tax collector. We, we hear his testimony earlier in Matthew. What did Jesus do with Matthew? Shun him? 
shame him? No. He invited himself to, to, to Matthew's place for dinner. <laughs> and, and in that context, he, his heart to Matthew was just openness and love, and he invited Matthew to follow him. But still, Jesus draws a clear line from those inside his community and outside his community. Jesus' point is, is that by step four, it's pretty clear that you're not dealing with a disciple of Jesus who is prepared to live and follow the ways of Jesus. I really love Eugene Peterson, and I really love Eugene Peterson's translation of this, his paraphrase of this passage. Let me read it to you. He says, if a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will help keep things honest. And then try again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. If he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start over from scratch. <laughs> Confront him with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. I think that captures the heart of it right there. Okay, we're almost done. Jesus goes on to kind of nuance this whole teaching with three other verses in kind of a, a cool, couple of cool ways. Verse 18, it says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now just to, to say, you got to know that uh, binding and loosing is something scholars debate over what means a lot. They, they, they don't quite know how to figure this out. But we do know the words binding and loosing were used by rabbis in Jesus' day to convict or acquit someone according to the law. Somehow, mysteriously, God gives his church a measure of authority to do his will on earth as in heaven. We actually are invited as, a, as his people, his body on earth, to make in the very, very best sense of this word, judgments about things. We're meant to have this kind of discernment about things. And people can be freed or bound depending on their willingness to respond to the warnings of the church. Really, whatever it means, what this does mean, I think, is when we confront sin or when we step into a ministry of correction with a brother or sister, it means that we have God with us. He's with us in that journey. And then Jesus says in verse 19, again, truly I tell you that if two of you uh, agree on anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. I'd love to spend a whole sermon just on those two verses. But again, I, and I've loved them. Certainly they talk about the power of praying with a friend. Like when the power of, of, of agreeing together and inviting God to do something. He loves answering those kind of prayers. And it also talks about the power of gathering in Jesus' name. So good. But check this out. Jesus says, I am God with you. And I'm not just God with you in your worship services and in your Bible studies and in your life groups and when you gather to pray. I'm with you in the mess of community. I'm with you when people wander. I'm with you when, when you're correcting a brother. I'm with you in, in the mess of, of trying to, to work out what faith looks like in our day. I'm with you in that. Jesus is very realistic. He knows that, that forging 
God-honoring, healthy Christian community will be a battle. It's upside down, and, and he's very realistic about that. And as we seek to live out this, this kind of mutual accountability that is the way of Jesus, it's something he gets behind and is with us in. Isn't that good news? That's very cool. You're never alone in it. So to conclude, quick private conversations are acts of love and should be happening often in Christian communities, in Christian families, in, in friendships. It's common knowledge that, that one of the most valued traits of a friend is that they will hold you accountable, that they actually won't let you slide. Like Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend who corrects out of love and concern. And, and I, I want to also suggest, friends, that there needs to be grace for this. I don't think we're going to get this exactly right. You know, in the ministry of correcting a brother or sister, there's great potential of hurt. And sometimes we avoid doing it because we just think we're going to suck at it, right? We, we just go, yeah, I'm going to get that wrong, so I'm never going to do that. And I think that's a tragedy. I, I think the church now is not in greater threat from people talking to another brother or sister. It's not talking to another brother and sister. It's actually being indifferent to something that is self-destructive for them, that will maybe lead them to wandering away, to pretend it doesn't matter, that there's no real stakes. And Jesus tells us that little parable to remind us that, that God is the good shepherd, and Jesus, as our shepherd, is fierce about going after his wandering sheep, the lost sheep. And he invites us to join him in that ministry. Isn't that cool? I don't think some of you are convinced. You think it's not so cool. Uh, I don't need another job. I wonder this morning, some of you here this morning, there may be somebody that you know you need to talk to. You need to reach out to them and have a, a private, honest conversation with them. You might even know right off the bat, this may be something you need to pray about. It certainly is going to be a muscle that you're going to have to grow in the years to come as you are an apprentice of Jesus. There are going to be times where you have a brother or a sister that you're close to, and you, you see something and you go, I, you know what, I need to talk to them about that. So that, that may be something you could be praying about. And, and, and if you know, I'd, I'd challenge you to go. Like, live out what, this teaching of Jesus. And, and he will get behind you, and he will walk with you. There may be some of you here this morning where you go, I know I'm the wanderer. <laughs> I know I've straight. There's an area in my life where uh, I'm not aligned with Jesus. I'm living away from Jesus. I've strayed. Um, I'm in that place. You've been snagged by sin. And I want to say this morning, God loves you so much. He never writes anybody off. He never looks at us with contempt or disgust. He loves you so much, he will leave the 99 to go after you. He's your shepherd. And I want to say this as one of your pastors. We love you too. We love you too. Uh, wanderers are welcome in this church. I hope we'll be brave enough to challenge you and call you on stuff. I, that'd be a really good thing for us to grow in as a community. 
I think we're such a warmly welcoming community that we might be tempted to never actually exercise this practice that Jesus calls us to. May God give us courage to come alongside one another and speak the truth in love. Why don't we pray? Uh, Lord, I, I thank you for your, your practical teaching today where uh, you express your concern for us and, and, and you're realistic about the fact that we, some of us and maybe most of us, will wander and wander uh, often. Would you indeed, by your grace and your mercy, Lord, help us to be responsive to this and, and uh, actually live out this teaching as you've called us to. We pray, Lord, you know, uh, Lord, there are um, probably people that we know right now that, that you're asking us and you're inviting us to have a conversation with. Give us courage. Give us love. Help us to do this well, we pray. And Lord, for us who've wandered, I, I pray, Jesus, you invite us to repent and return. And the promise always is re recovery and forgiveness, grace abounding. Draw us back to yourself, Lord. We confess we mess up so much and we can get locked into guilt and shame. And I pray, Lord, you'd, again, you're the God who, who wipes the slate clean. You, you turn the crooked path and you make it straight. And so, Jesus, where we've wandered, we want to get back on track. Would you help us, Lord, by your mercy and your grace? Bless this church as we seek to live this as a church. Help us to do it in an honest and open and loving way, I pray we'd never be bullies to one another. Uh, we'd always be having Jesus, you at the center of this. We pray these things to the, together in Jesus' name. Amen.